Hi there, I'm Jake Comfrey and you're listening to High Performance, our conversation for you every single week. Don't forget, you can also subscribe to High Performance Plus if you want loads more content from the High Performance team every single week and you also want to listen to these podcasts without adverts, then all you need to do is click the link to High Performance Plus in the description for this podcast or go to thehighperformancepodcast.com. This podcast reminds you that it's already within your ambition, your purpose, your story. It's there, but we just help you unlock it by turning the lived experiences of the planet's highest performers into your life lessons. So right now, allow myself and Professor Damien Hughes to speak to the greatest leaders, thinkers, entrepreneurs, and in this case, sports stars on the planet, so they can be your teacher. Remember, this podcast is not about high achievement or high success. It's about high happiness, high self-worth, and taking you closer to a life of fulfillment, empathy, and understanding. Today, this awaits you. When I was a youngster, I had that in the likes of my teammates. We were so lucky, both in Beijing and London, that our team was incredible we had an incredible camaraderie and it was like family trying to be prepared as you can in what you do and be in control of your controllables I think that's what I learned about myself the plan was actually for the 200 meter mark for me to overtake her but that didn't go and <laughs> the last 50 meters um, I just thought I have to give it everything I got and do you know when that extra something comes out of you that you don't know where it is but it's deep in your heart It was like all that pain disappeared and I was just in my own little mind, in my own little space. You go over that threshold of pain and you go into that next gear that's something that you can't train for, it just comes. That kicked in in that last 25 metres, I'd say. All I know that I'm good at is swimming and it's like all that, that's gone now. What actually am I good at? What is it that I want to do next? Yes, today's episode of the High Performance Podcast is with Paralympic swimmer Ellie Simmons. I mean, I'm sure you remember she competed in Beijing at just 13 years of age as part of Team GB. She won two golds. She then competed in London in 2012 at the Paralympics and she won two golds. She went to Rio in 2016 and she won gold again. And then, of course, she went to Tokyo in 2020. She didn't win a medal and then she retired. So those are the things that she's done. That's what she's done. But this podcast episode covers how she did it, how she dealt with perception from other people at a young age, how resilience was key to her, how her friends, her family and her parents inspired her. And we also talk about how she sustained that success for so many years, which so few people can do. We also go deep on retirement. As you heard there, it gets emotional. Ellie is incredibly honest in this conversation. I've never heard Ellie Simmons talk in the way that she does and talk about the things that she talks about. And I've known her for a long time. So I think this is a really fascinating conversation. And I want anyone to listen to this who feels judged, who feels that people don't know the truth about them. For people who are struggling at the moment, for people who need to take energy from somebody else to lift them up. This is such an inspiring conversation with Ellie. You will learn so much from this. And all I ask is just one thing from you. You pass it on you share the podcast with somebody because people need to hear what Ellie Simmons has to say. Today's episode of the High Performance Podcast with swimmer Ellie Simmons comes next. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Well, look, let's... Um First of all, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you ever so much. It's nice thank you. On. Um, how would you describe high performance? I would say performing at the best in the most professional way, I would say, but also performing to the best of your own abilities. I think it's so hard these days. You want to compare yourself to other people, but actually don't, you know, work yourself, work really hard doing the things that you want to do in the best of your abilities. So how did you learn that then? Because you, you had success so young. How, I'm fascinated when I see my kids hardly able to get a pair of socks that match, right? <laughs> then I look at someone like you, a few years older, winning medals on the world stage. Were you different to other people of your age, um, do you think? Or? Half and half. I think no. I think what really helped being as a kid, a, a youngster, like I think in one sense in Beijing in 2008 when I was 13, I was young, but I didn't really think about things as well. I think I was 13 going on 30, in a sense, because I was the youngest in the team by a massive margin. I think the next oldest was like 17, 18. I would attach myself to the older athletes and the older teams, and they just took me under their wing. But also, because I was so young, I didn't really take on the world. I didn't really think of the pressure, think of the outside world. I was just doing the sport that I love to do, like I, I did every single day, and I didn't really take the outside world in. So when you went on that journey then from being the youngest in the team to then being regarded as a veteran, you know, when you eventually went to Rio, did that ever change? It's so funny because I think the a lot of the team always used to say to me, especially the, the um, coaches and all that, they, they called me the matron <laughs> when I was um, the older one um, in the team because I just make sure I, everyone was in their place, supporting everyone, looking after everyone. So I think, yeah, it did change. I think as a 13-year-old, as a kid, I was just so excited, just so excited to be there, not thinking about the outside world, just buzzing. Whereas actually, as 
the older I got, the more experienced I got. And I think that happens in every walk of life, doesn't it? When you're, you're new to something, you're quite naive, you're not really thinking about things, you're just so excited to be there. Where as you're older, you've got gained that whole years of experience that I just made sure that everyone was okay on the team. But I think that's, my, again, my personality. I like to make sure everyone's okay. Even like when I see it on a train or walking in the street and I see an older person on their own or someone sitting on their old, I always worry about them. I, I'm like, I hope they're okay, you know? But I think, again, that's my personality. So I felt like, in a sense, being the older one on the team, I felt um, a sense of responsibility, making sure that everyone else on the team, all the, the new athletes coming through that they they were comfortable they were happy in a way because I think when I was a youngster I had that in the likes of my teammates we were so lucky both in Beijing and London that our team was incredible we had an incredible camaraderie and it was like family we were all so so close and I think because of like London and the pressure that that had on Paralympians and Olympians and and for us it was the games of all games and we had to be tight-knit because we were away a lot of the time and I think we were so close in that sense that it just brought us all together. So can we go back to those periods then where you're competing in, I mean, you competed in Beijing when you were really young, you then came to the London Games, which as you know had incredible pressure but also like amazing opportunity attached to it. So how would you deal with that pressure, that expectation, that scrutiny? What what tips or tricks would you go through either just before competing or in that whole period? Because there'll be so many young people listening to this that struggle when the pressure is on. It's so hard to, to know what I did that worked. I think in a weird way, I, I love pressure. It drives me. But it's so funny, actually, as a kid, and especially going into London 2012, there's a huge amount of pressure on our shoulders. Whereas now the pressure gets to me a lot more. So sometimes I wish I look back at myself as 13-year-old, as a 17-year-old going into London. I think, what did I actually do? How did I cope with that pressure? Because I wish I knew. I wish I knew that, so I could give it to not just other people, but myself. It's interesting, that, isn't it? I wonder whether a chondroplasia as a young person gave you the resilience so that when you were in those moments of severe pressure, you were able to draw on maybe the lessons that you'd learned? I don't know. I don't think my disability of contraplasia has defined me yeah. in a weird way. I think it's just, I'm 27 now. It's all I know. I don't know what it's like being taller. I don't know what it's like being uh, being able to reach things or without this disability. So I think in a weird way, no, it hasn't. But I think in a sense as well, it's my personality. And I think it's the support around you. I think looking back now, just jogging my memory, what how I coped with London 2012 was having that support team around me. My coach, Billy Pye, who's been my rock since for years and years. Um, the, um, the performance director at the time, John Atkinson, the physio, the team that we had in, in Swansea. And also I think what really helped as well was as a 13-year-old and a 17-year-old, I was going to school still in a weird way both Rio and Tokyo, I was an adult and I didn't have those distractions. Whereas um, I would go swimming in the morning and I would have a whole day at school where you have those hours in the day and you're not thinking about swimming because you're just thinking about being a, a normal person, a normal student. And looking back now, I think it's clicked actually. Probably that has really helped me. Yes, I was tired. I remember in my English classes, nodding off in the afternoon because we were training in the morning, training in the afternoon. But actually that school balance and having a life outside of the pool really, really helped me distract and be around people that 
didn't know what swimming or didn't know what sport was like I had the most amazing friends that friendship group from year seven to year 11 in a Welsh school in Okfa it was just fabulous like it was amazing and I think having that student life really really helped so maybe that's what helped yeah. both in those two games but what intrigues me about your story Ellie is that like you describe this family unit or people around you that are there to lift you up and yet you put yourself into two environments that I can think of where where that sort of support doesn't necessarily come so readily so you left your home in in uh, in the midlands to move to swansea with your mum that young age of 13 you're having to go and make a new friendship group in a new city and then also going into sort of elite sport you're going into an environment where competition and we have the idea of it often being cutthroat and yet you've managed to create these cultures around you where people do want to lift you up and see you uh, yeah. thrive how did you do that? Um, I think, again, it's probably... Oh, that's a hard question, because I, I think I'm quite very lucky that because um, being on the team from such a young age and being able to travel, and I'm quite independent, and I think I'm quite adaptable. <laughs> so being adapting to all these new environments I see it as a thing to to learn yes I love my comfort zone it's something I think all humans do you love your home environment you love being around people that you're happy you're comfortable with but also being out of that comfort zone is also quite a thrilling thing and I quite like that I love learning new things I love like sometimes putting myself in uncomfortable positions yes it's it's not a nice feeling when you feel a bit like nervous you feel a bit sick but actually the feeling afterwards when it goes well it's like it's that natural high and I think that's what I miss in a sense about swimming and missing this in sport is that yes you're you're so nervous going into something that you're in control you're not in control of the races all that type of thing but actually that feeling afterwards it's that drug isn't it it's that thrilling feeling that you want to do it again and again you want to put yourself in uncomfortable positions and yeah it's not nice feelings but it's it's a, a thing that you just want to you're, you're addicted to which you make sound really natural but for a lot of people to be able to adapt and to not only have change forced on them but to actually go and seek it out is a difficult skill so what tips and advice would you give to anyone listening to this about how they can embrace change in whatever form it comes? Trying to be prepared as you can in what you do and be in control of your controllables. I think that's what I learned about myself. And I think growing up in the sport and growing up in my own self is that sometimes yes you can control things but also you can't control things but being in control of the things that you can control is a massive advantage so working on yourself working on the things that are going well things that you can control is is a massive thing and what about dealing with struggles and setbacks and difficulties if you go back to that early part of your career is there a moment that you look back on and you think wow that was so hard at the time but we have a lovely phrase on the podcast that just because something's hard for you it doesn't mean it's bad for you yeah and I think we only realized years later that actually that either emotional or mental or physical struggle was actually a really good thing I think for me was back in Rio the lead up to Rio 2016 I was again not in the, men the right mental states your mind 
can play a massive part in your ability to to do something. What a change then. Could you expand on what your struggles were at that point? Yeah, I think my self-belief was massively um, impacted. I didn't have any self-belief at all. And it's so strange because I was doing more swim sessions. I was doing more gym. I was doing three gym sessions a week. I was, again, the most strongest that I've ever been. My swim sessions were going incredible. But actually, my self-belief in myself was just at the lowest that it's ever been and I don't know why and I I wish that I had a reason why but I think it made me realize that actually how important it is to have that balanced life and not just be all about swimming and I think at that time it was just I was so swimming focused and actually I realized that looking back I think I needed to have a balance and it wasn't just all about swimming but I needed to have focus on myself away from the sport too because I think I was just again in, Man- in in time in Manchester leading into to, to Rio 2016. My friends were all swimmers. I was in a swimming environment. I, I lived with swimmers. It was all swim, 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 where actually I didn't really have a break away from it. Like I hardly saw my family because I was so focused on my sport. And in the sense, sometimes it's actually, you've got to give yourself a break. Yeah, I was just so focused on the sport where actually I needed to think of myself as a person too. That takes us into a really interesting area when we think about, uh, like when we knew you were coming as a guest on today, Ali, which is around labels. So you said that at that time, people would have just said, oh, that's Ellie the swimmer, not Ellie the person that just happens to swim, uh, is that distinction. You use that term about having a disability. And I'm interested in how that label applies to you because... We talk about the Pygmalion effect where sometimes, you know, that can be a positive label on somebody and they act up to it. But equally, the Golem effect is you can give someone a negative label and they act down to uh, those expectations. How do you deal with being labelled as disabled? To be honest, I don't really think about it. But also I do think about it because I wouldn't have had the opportunities that I had if I wasn't Ellie Simmons with a chondroplasia dwarfism. I wouldn't have been able to go to the Paralympics. I wouldn't have been able to meet so many incredible people with different disability and part of that Paralympic movement. So in a sense, it's 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 a good thing because it's given me an incredible opportunity and also a responsibility now. I, I think, like, when I was a kid, looking up, I had um, role models, the likes of Nairi Lewis, um, Paralympian swimmer, incredible athlete, and I saw people in, like, the limelight with different disabilities, and I was like, wow they can do it I can so I feel like now I've got that responsibility because I'm yes I'm I'm a dwarf that now hopefully people can hear this podcast or see on the tv or see as an athlete and think that they can achieve something but I think having that label as a disability I don't think of it as a day-to-day thing I think because I just go on my daily business you know and I think it'd be quite nice for actually people to see that people with different disabilities they're just do everyday stuff the same as everyone else so when you were growing up then uh, before you had the opportunity to maybe pursue a career as a swimmer how did you handle it then when people maybe had a label or made a judgment how did you deal with that to not let it seep into your own identity 
I didn't really think about it. Like, I do remember that one moment where I, I, re- I it clicked that I was different to everyone in my class. I was different into... When in, was that? It was in a playground, actually. I think I was in, like, year one, year two. And I remember playing hide-and-seek um, with my peers. Like, And I remember... I think I was a seeker. I remember being in the corner of a playground and thinking, gosh, I'm small, aren't I? Do you know, it's so... As a kid, you just... You, you think of those little things, don't you? Yeah. You say it, like, how it is, really. And I was... It, yeah I thought oh wow I am different I am I'm not as tall as my my peers my my classmates and but I had that one moment of reflection but then I was running off playing being the seeker so I think I've been very lucky that again my sister next to me has a chondroplasia and my oldest sister has learning difficulties so we've been brought up in a family and my cousin has autism as well I think we've been brought up in a family that that we're surrounded by different disabilities and I think what my parents are, they're, they're open to it and they're open to us talking about it and being aware of it. And like when we see people in the streets, I, I always, always look and think, oh, wow, they've got, a dis- they've got a disability. I always put them in like, what classification in sport could they be? You know, just the awareness of seeing different people. And I think because I was maybe brought up with different people around me and different disabilities, that I've just been aware of it. What I love about seeing people with other disabilities and ranking them for where they would compete in the Paralympics is like you're kind of pushing them up right (laughs) whereas all too often society looks at someone with a disability and would naturally go oh they can't do sport because it we sort of class them down do you know what I mean what advice would you give to parents to teachers to friends of people with a disability to to just have the right kinds of conversations to yeah. push them upwards yeah I think it's the conversation isn't it it's talking to them I think sometimes people are too scared these days to actually talk but what I learned going back and I think I would share that with a lot of people who have a disability is that identity I've been part of the Dwarf Sports Association from a baby and having that similarity to someone has I think growing up has really really helped me because I'm I know that I'm not the only one in the world like with with my condition that having that identity someone to talk to about it is 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 a massive massive thing and that community feel as well like I remember when I was a kid learning from like the likes of the older ones about driving you know I never th- even living with the condition the thing about adaptions in the car like I wouldn't have known anything about it but seeing people with my disability having a car that's adapted or things like periods you know how to adapt with that and stuff it's like it's the learning it's the talking about it but having that identity and someone that's similar to you is is really really important that is a word that I associate so strongly with you you know adaptability would you describe that as one of your superpowers or, yes. are, you, or are you too modest to no say? I think so yeah I think so when we say about adaptability yes it's a good thing but for me it's about being prepared but then also the negative side to being prepared is being out of control and I always like me and my coach Billy we've got an incredible relationship and we were always prepared for everything we were planners we prepared planned everything planned everything to a T the sessions every single day the year, the world championships, the Europeans and the four year cycle, we had that planned from as soon as like um, Beijing finished, we had London 2012, everything planned out and yes that's amazing and it's good to be planned but also probably one of our negative traits and probably one of my negative traits is when things don't go to plan I found it sometimes hard to, to, to deal with that because I'm so rigid and so pl- 
everything has to be do 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 when it's actually out of my control and things don't go to plan actually ha having that adaptability was one of the traits that I had to learn go growing up that's really interesting because we've interviewed uh, both Mel Marshall and Adam Peaty and they spoke to us about how um, Mel had almost had to coach Adam in the ability to deal with setbacks so in Rio he had his kit stolen he had it and he had to literally go and compete with just the clothes he had on he turned up but they'd been to Africa the summer before and they'd had to deal with like pools that were locked and setbacks and difficulties there were all about teaching him adaptability how did you learn adaptability then and what tips could you give to our listeners to be able to handle setbacks um I think it's been thrown into the deep end isn't it for me I was very much plan 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 love to be prepared if things didn't go my way or didn't things didn't go as planned it definitely it would give me a massive step back but then I think I learned growing up is actually to be prepared for the things that you can't prepare for as well and I think that's being thrown into the deep end like like you mentioned with Adam losing your kit like it happens sometimes doesn't it and you can't you can't plan for things like that but preparing yourself and being put in those difficult situations like in Tokyo um, for that matter um, the transport wasn't the best in that and all the buses were being late and for me normally um, that would be a massive massive thing it would get to my head what I was just saying to myself is it's out of your control you can't control this transport situation but I know now that it, I am going to be late but you've just got to roll with it and how were you with failure at this point in your life because you know you're working on that four-year cycle there are very few people that operate in the world where it's four years of training four years of effort four years of sacrifice four years of early alarm clocks for something that might last a minute at the most. How were you with failure at this point in your life? To be honest, um, got to put my hand out, I hated it. Really? <laughs> yeah, I really, um, even when sessions wouldn't go well on a day-to-day -day basis, I would beat myself up. I would say like, and maybe it's passion, maybe it's because I want to do things at the best of my ability. I'm very competitive, not just um, outside, but inside in my in my own ability too. I like to be the best that I can be every single day. And I used to say to myself, we're not robots. Like one sh part of my shoulder would be like, Ellie, you're not a robot. You can't do things all the time at the best. But then the other bit would be like, oh my gosh, Ellie, you're shit, you're shit. Why are you doing this? But maybe in a weird way that's that, that little person in my, on the other side of my shoulder saying that I'm not good, I'm not good, was the motivator as well because you want to prove to yourself that you can do it the next day but then also trying to listen to that other shoulder and say we're not robots, we're, we're human beings as well and yeah, I found failure quite hard, I'm not going to lie, definitely but also I used it as motivation, if a, d a race didn't go to to my plan I would sit down straight away the day after with my coach and we would analyze everything that didn't go well <laughs> literally like I'm very much a person that puts things to paper like something ha there has to be an answer to something so if a race didn't go well we would sit down we would look at absolutely everything because I think for me when I stand behind that start block I like to make sure that I've done everything right I've got no regrets and I think in a sense that was a good thing with London 2012 and that's the build up to that I wanted to make sure that I was doing absolutely everything and I stood behind that 
starting block in London and I could say that to myself because I'd done absolutely everything but um and I was lucky that London 2012 went well but races that didn't go well in a sense I learned more about myself because I learned the things that didn't go well so then it wouldn't happen again in the future I learned from it like what for example what was say the biggest learning in that analysis after a failure that you took and had the it was biggest like, reward? It was like the little thing. So for me, it was like making sure that my preparation before a race to get to the pool a bit later than I had planned because I needed that time from warm-up to, to racing to be shorter than it was. As I grew older, the um, working with a psychologist and the mental side it was a massive massive thing and what I did in that 20 minutes in the core room where it was me and my just me on my own before I was going to a race I worked with like a psychologist on visualizing the race so as I got older the mental side was a massive massive part can we delve a bit deeper into this I know sometimes people think oh it's a bit vulnerable talking about work <laughs> I've done with a psychologist but I also think it's massively valuable because how old were you when you first started working with a psychologist? 17. And you've been swimming since the age? At five. And right. So that's 12 years, right, where you've done session after session after session on your body and not a single session on your brain. Yeah. There is a definite conversation to be had here about the fact that we need more time spent training our brains as well as our bodies, right? Oh, hugely. And I think it's one of the good things now is that we're talking more about the mental health aren't we and I think it's more getting more talked about and more prominent in sport the mental side of sport because I think in a weird way you see athletes as these incredible human beings who are unstoppable who can achieve anything but actually they they deal with a lot and they have a lot of mental pressures a lot of mental stigmas all that type of thing and it needs to be yet yeah, worked on in, in a sense and I've learned that actually speaking to a psychologist to having that support system like therapists all that type of thing is huge it's so 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 important I don't want to uh, uh, demean that work you did but if you could distill it down to one lesson that you went that's gold dust for my performance that you got from those conversations with with psychologists what would you say that was Ellie? probably not worrying about your other competitors when I was a kid I used to have a list of like what I used to call my enemies and my competitors and I used to tick box them when I when like when I beat them or when I did well right and, okay. um, but later on in life I very much was aware more of my competitors and those individuals and I didn't I saw them as in threats in a weird way and in a sense I wanted to try and control them and I couldn't control them and I worried about them like I would look at their like rankings and I would look at their competition and um, their times at, all the time right. on meets and I would worry about like when they were coming into um, the competition pool what time they were coming in and later on I learned that actually like I can't control what they are doing you know they're getting to me they're already winning before they've even raced because yeah. I'm worrying about what they're doing before actually focusing on myself and I think I learned that a lot even and I still did it in Tokyo I was still worrying about my competitors probably more but I I've definitely learned a lot from it because I used to be really really worry about them all the time how did you bring the dial back down to say healthier level for you um, what ideas did you put focus in place? on myself focus on the controllables what I can control and that's what um the performance director John Atkinson used to always say control the controllables and I used to write that down because I was like 
come on out you can only focus on yourself don't worry about all these other people because it is negative energy and I think what I worked with my psychologist was was just focusing on my things my little goals focusing on myself not worrying about them not looking at like the results on the web trying to stop at things like that don't actually google their names all that type of stuff just focus solely on myself and I think yeah it's it's tough and sometimes I think we're in a day at the age at the moment aren't we with social media it's easy to look at what other people are doing and I, I'm, I'm very much aware of that even more like you do you, you compare your lives to to other people and as a as an athlete I did that but what impact would it have on you to do that so say like you look at a rival and you see that they're posting times that are really impressive what would that do internally to you when you'd see that it would be a mix of both and it would depend on what mental state I was in. If I saw that they were doing incredible times and I was in a positive mental state, I'd be like, I want to hit this training session even harder. I want to like split their, their, their times in training and make sure that, yeah, I can get their, their times in a weird way. But then also if I was in a bad mental health, it would cripple me. I would be like getting really emotional, thinking, oh my God, what, what what's the point in doing this? Like, And I think it varies. I think I've learned from a lot about myself that I'm very much like a mental roller coaster if I, when I'm good I'm amazing and the sport yeah can I, I'm all right at it like I can do well but when I'm at the bottom of my de- like mental state the sport and everything else can go really bad but it sounds to me like there's that metaphor that um, it's that old story I think it's like often attributed to sort of uh, Native Americans where they say like you've got a, a good wolf and a bad wolf and it depends on which one you feed it depends on which one grows stronger yeah and that's how you're describing that experience of you've got that one person on your shoulder telling you that you're shit and the other one telling you that you're amazing y- yeah definitely and it would I be think, like that like I can really relate to that as I'm sure a lot of listeners can what tips or can you give us to start feeding the amazing version of you the one that is a cheerleader for you rather than the one that's constantly trying to undermine you when you are in that good mood grasp it but also um relish what is making you happy um and i think i learned a lot of things it's like the simple things in life and that would then lower the the shitness the shit feeling um it's like trying to make sure that you enjoy the simple things and it's that distraction isn't it I think that's what I learned a lot is to distract my mind when things aren't feeling that well like focus on things that are going really well like I used to leading into like big competitions like the Paralympics one of my best friends Gemma she would always be aware that like I was going into a major games and she always made me text her three things every single day that had gone well or the little things and I find that really helped so when days weren't when I was having that shit day I would think of those three little things that were going really like that I loved like simple things like my coffee in the morning if that tasted amazing I would write that down and the sun in the sky because then that would outweigh the feeling of the bad days the shit days yeah my race or my, my training session didn't go to plan but actually outside in the real world it's amazing weather and that's such a nice feeling as well mother's day is around the corner find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from blue nile from timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones blue nile has something she'll adore Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. 
For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I love this and maybe I shouldn't love it, but I love this competitive spirit that you clearly had inside you. And I love the idea of writing down my enemies and then ticking yeah. off when you beat them. And I, of course you can say that's unhealthy in some ways. Of course you can. But you can also say, look where you got to in your career. And all of these moments were part of the story. You know, you wouldn't have got to there if you hadn't at some point been here doing these things. How old do you think you were when you first wrote down my enemies and the names of the people that... Probably 2004 when like my um my so how old were you then so uh, I was about eight nine but I think it's quite relatable though isn't it in the work yeah. life or in everyday life you always have those per- people um in an, say in an office you want to do better than yes and it's a bit weird to say it out loud you want to be better than that person you want to be better than that person but actually it's okay because we want to do the best of our uh, our ability and it's okay to admit that yeah we want to be better than those persons and I think sometimes in the modern world we try and get rid of that do you know what I mean? mm. so you shouldn't you shouldn't be comparing yourself but there can't and again this flies in the face of some of the stuff we discuss there can be not always but there can be a power oh, in comparison to see where someone is why not look at someone further ahead than you and how did they get there what have they done yeah. how do I how and you can learn from that, that can't you? Absolutely. Like, and and I think we all need a bit of motivation and a bit of kick up the ass some some days, don't we? Um, and I think we all some days, yeah, we do lack in motivation. But to have those people that you aspire to, that you want to be like, it's 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 that drive, isn't it? We're all humans, but also we all have a bit of a competitive streak, don't we? Whether it's in your sport, whether it's in your five k on a weekend, whether it's um your work, short term goals, long term goals, you still everyone has that competitive street that they want to become better than someone see i think the comparison is good if you deal with it in the right way yeah now the negative way of dealing with it is to go like they're great i'm never going to match them why are they better why are they more successful the right way is right i'm going to make sacrifice i'm going to work hard i'm going to be single-minded i'm going to be determined i'm going to use every part of my armory to try and beat this person so can we go into that part of your life at this stage you know we're talking about a really young you're not even at high school yet right and you're operating in this kind of world. So can you talk us through the hard work and the sacrifice and the dedication? Because all too often in this modern world, we want to tell ourselves that person was lucky because it's a bit of an easier message for our brains than to remind ourselves that hard work wins every time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And going on the train this morning, I was I was trying to think actually, what what is it about myself that I do to have got 
five Paralympic gold medals, you know. I think it's really hard sometimes. You just go about your daily business and you don't really think about what's got you there. And it was really hard to think, actually, what what is it? What skills have I have I got or that's made me be able to achieve what I have? But I was thinking about it. I think for me, yes, it's the sacrifice. It's, again, it's that focus. Like I like you said, I moved to, to, to Wales and um, to Swansea to train at the High Performance Centre with Billy Pye and the incredible team that there was there when I was um, 12 going into to, to Beijing and London 2012 and I think sacrifice is a big big thing and sometimes we don't like to admit that we've sacrificed a lot of things like looking back like uh, yes I went to school but um I miss a lot of those teenage years, you know, when you're a teenager, you go out drinking, you you go to house parties. Majority of that, I, I, I didn't do. And yes, I look back and I, I don't regret it because actually, like I was able to travel the world, but I didn't go to prom, things like that. Um, but yeah, sacrifice, I think, is a, is a massive thing. And I think sometimes we do need to make that sacrifice to, to become the best if we want to become the best. This reminds me of the conversation with John McAvoy. So John McAvoy was a guy who was one of the most wanted criminals in the world and he's now become an elite athlete. But he talks about being a young guy and he came from a criminal family and his uncle took him out in a Porsche and all his mates were driving to school. And his uncle was basically saying to him, yeah, this Porsche is through ill-gotten gains, but look at all these other people, see how they're walking? You're above them, you're better than them, you're different to them. And I actually remember when I stumbled into a TV job at like 17, 18 years old, I started not going out in the evening. And I looked at my friends going out and getting drunk, spending money, having hangovers. And I remember thinking to myself, you're on a different path. Was that part of your thinking? It was a weird way because it was like I had two sides of me. Um, I had the Ellie Simmons, the swimmer, who had incredible friends on the team. And I used to always hang around with them in the evenings. And like we used to go bowling together. And But then also I was that Ellie Simmons, the student as well. Well, tell us that. I mean, like just when you said that there about the person you were when you worked on the poolside was this invulnerable competitor that you've already targeted the other people there as your enemies and yet the contrast with being the Ellie that can walk into a school at 13 and make this brilliant group of friends that just warm to you that are looking to lift you up almost sounds like two separate people so what would you do to put that mask on of being the Ellie, the competitor on the pool side in London that is going to blitz anybody? Um, well, I think I'm 10 years older now. And I think I've, I've got that world experience. And I think as a 17-year-old, you're still a kid in a way, aren't you? And you're very much... I was still swimming. I was still school. I was still everything. Where actually I wasn't really thinking about the outside world. I was so focused on myself. So in a way, I wish I could go back and like look at what I did then. Beijing and London was different because Paralympics was wasn't was London was showcased Paralympic sport. But before that, Paralympians and Paralympics wasn't really heard of. Every four years, the Paralympics are watched by millions and millions of people, and I was very much aware of that growing up. And now. Um, both Beijing and London the pressure that that brings on you and I think yeah that definitely put a lot of weight on my shoulders did you thrive under the spotlight of fame because I, like when you talk about walking in with your shoulders back and your chest puffed out and your sort of armor of self-belief at London 2012 like your fame at that point you were one of the most recognizable people in the country after what you'd done in 2008 and going into London obviously it didn't derail you, that fame, and it does derail a lot of people. So I wonder how you dealt with that. Going into London, I relished it. 
absolutely loved it but also in a sense I was like I remember for London 2012 which I didn't do for for Beijing is I used a different phone um for when I was in that 2012 bubble I uh, like didn't go on social what media what did the different phone do for you so I only had like contacts that like I wanted to get in contact with me so oh, like wow. like my coach um close friends family members so that actually I wouldn't get distracted because I know now like you see that one negative little comment and it can play with your mind so I thought going into London I'm gonna have a totally different phone I'm gonna have a phone that's I don't can't really access internet I think it was like a little old Nokia phone um but with a sim card that no one can get in contact with me because I was so like I just wanted to do so well and I'd done all this training I didn't want this one little negative thing seeing something de derail my my focusness doing that in 2012 really really helped and just being having that tight-knit when you're in my bubble I trust you and I had that close-knit bubble like I use my parents all the time like I remember going into 2012 I used to speak to them all the time on the phone and some days yes I was crying because I was so nervous for 2012 and especially leading into those games I had an American burst on the scene three months before the games who um broke the world records and smashed all the times and I'd never raced there before that moment in the 400 meter final in 2012 but I think it was having that close-knit around me and that support system and that people that I could trust. And so how did you deal with her at that point? Did you go with the enemy and tick her off or had you moved beyond that and you'd learned that the comparison is, is not helpful for you? I think me and Billy knew that like we trained for 5.19, which is so funny because I remember him saying 5.19 and I was thinking, I'm not going to be able to do that time, Billy. But he had so much like- Was that a world record as well, by yeah, the way? Yeah, yeah, right. it was. Okay. Um, but he had so much like belief that I could do it. And I think when you when you're with people that are passionate it radiates off you doesn't it like when we're working together and you've got a team around you how passionate who believe in you it gets you doesn't it like you want to show them like yeah they believe me I can do it and I think what worked was we knew that we'd done all this hard training and in a sense she was going to get me to that time I think if she wasn't there I probably would have wouldn't have got to a, a faster time but I knew that my I believed in myself I knew that well, the plan was actually for the 200 metre mark for me to overtake her, but that didn't go. <laughs> the last 50 metres, um, I just thought, I'm going to have to give it everything I got. And uh, do you know when that extra something comes out of you that you don't know where it is, but it's deep in your heart? And I remember just thinking, I'm just going to give it everything I got. And then I touched and, yeah. So you were in the pool and you can see her across as you're doing your sort of your breath strokes. And you could see that, <laughs> yeah. actually, I thought this was going to be at 200 metres, it was going to separate and now you're 50 metres. Were you actually thinking, I'm going to have to go deeper here? Yeah, and also I think it's a natural instinct as well. well I was going to say how much was natural think, versus... A um, bit of both. I knew that, like... I wanted to get that gold medal like I'd done all this training for that moment I knew that like I wanted it and you know when you want something so badly you give everything don't you but then also I think that extra something that spark of something that you can't control and it only comes out in certain moments and you can't control that that extra what was it describe it it was like all that pain disappeared and I was just in my own little mind, in my own little space. You go over that threshold of pain and you go into that next gear that's something that you can't train for. It just comes. That kicked in in that last 25 metres, I'd say. Total flow. 
Yeah, yeah, and it's it's like an aura. Yeah, it's so hard to describe it, but and so hard to to work at it and train at it. But I think I think all of us humans, if we want something so bad, it comes. There's a lot of research done, in, as you know, done into flow, and what the research says is the time when you get into flow is when you're trying to achieve something which is really difficult but it's just achievable. And it sounds yeah, like yeah. in these instances, you knew it was a stretch, you knew it was further than you had been before, but you were doing it. So therefore you got into that beautiful, serene state. And there's a wonderful interview with the late Ayrton Senna where he talks about qualifying in Monaco. And the same thing happened. He was finding time, he was finding seconds and it suddenly wasn't hard anymore. And he actually had to pull into the pit lane because he felt himself going quicker and quicker and quicker. And he was in such a state of flow he knew if he didn't pull into the pit lane, he he would crash and possibly kill himself or badly injure himself because he was moving in such a sort of serene space. And it's an amazing thing to hear you talk about that because yeah. very few people on planet Earth have experienced it, let alone experienced it at the very elite level. I think that's what's amazing about sport is, and like now I still, I'm still do sport and especially swimming because it's you in your own mind, isn't it? And there's something about that where you've got no, you're not thinking about anything else. It's just you in your own mind. And it's like that feeling of just being in air. Like that's what sport is. It's quite like, and it's a drug in a sense. So you said that when you failed in the race, you and Billy would sit down immediately after it and work out what did we do wrong? What, what do we need to fix? Would you do the same after those experiences where you've been successful? I wouldn't actually, <laughs> no. Um, and maybe I could have learnt from that, but actually no, I think because you use those experiences, what that goes well is like your high, your motivation. So can I ask you about breaking world records though? Because I think that area of exceptionalism is really fascinating. And I'm interested in how you would go about working backwards from the world record like you said when Billy had said 519 and your first reaction you said was I can't do that oh, yeah. I'm interested about how you decide that you're going to go where nobody else has gone and you work back to how are we going to do it so for listeners maybe that are on this that we're not talking about world records but doing things that they've never tried before or things outside of their frame of reference I want to know the uh, the formula that you used to break was it five world records you did in your career quite yeah um i think for you have that one goal um and that's normally at paralympics so that's normally every four years but i used to give myself short-term goals to get to that long-term goal so um again both in training i would try and like um do a, a threshold set or a max session and hit a certain time so that I would build myself up and uh, recharge like and cope with lactic acid and things like that so it's more the I'll definitely I was a short-term setter in goals but also a long-term setter in goals to, to get that long-term goal of that 519 so again we used to also um cut it down so like that 400 meters we would then train like 850s at the the, the pace that I wanted to go um in that 400 meters so I think it, that pace was like 40 seconds for 50 so I would do then 850s hitting that 40 second pace so then that it would come in a race where I've got a suit on you've shaved down you're tapered all that you, you're in a race style that I knew that I could do 40 seconds for a 50 meters because I'd already done it in training um, so it was definitely it's cutting down the little things to make it in, to achieve that big goal 
there's also a real element of a control here and a good lesson for people. You know, if you just, you're swimming 400 metres, like that's a long way in a swimming pool. If you go out and give it everything for the first 50, you've blown up, right? You can't go and you can't go sprinting, can yeah. you? Yeah. So you have to know yourself so well and know that caught, like for the first 300 metres, you can swim faster, right? You, but you mustn't let yourself yeah, swim yeah. any faster. And that's what I quite like. I, I, I'm glad I'm a distance swimmer because I love the race tactics. What would you describe your intelligence as? And let me frame that because it sound, can sound <laughs> quite blunt. But what I mean is one of our favourite questions we like asking people is not how clever are you, but how are you clever? And what you're describing there is both physical intelligence to understand the pace, just a, 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 but also that social intelligence to be able to watch your opponents and have tactics. When you were in this flow state and operating as a world-class swimmer, what would you have described your intelligence as then, Ellie? In a way, I was a bit of a nerd in the sport of swimming. I'd say that was definitely, like even now, like in the pool, like I look at um, when I go swimming now and I'm not, it's not my sport now. Well, it's not a thing that I do every single day, but I look at different people's strokes in the, in the public and like, think about how they could improve that stroke it's just something that I quite like to do so in a way I'm a bit of a nerd to swimming and yeah I know every little detail and I love learning like love reading through books and like my favorite one of my favorite books is actually the Bob Bauman book oh yeah um, Michael Phelps's coach yeah yeah because how he describes the swimming and the passion and all those little bits those given given um like he gave a plan to his to his athletes about the Rio the Rio plan um yeah, like I just love all that that intrigue, little little details type stuff. I've loved having this conversation with you because I saw the Ellie that loads of people had seen with a big smile on your face and you like a party and you've got a great personality. <laughs> but I've also now seen the laser focused, super determined, incredibly competitive, attention to detail Ellie Simmons. The problem is the first Ellie, the happy-go-lucky, enjoying life Ellie is still there. You had to put to bed the other one because you've retired from swimming yeah and um i really want to know with absolute brutal honesty how hard is it to stop doing something that's been your life it's like an emotional roller coaster some days you're at, at, at a high and you absolutely love that you don't have to do the sport um i like that i can lie in extra i don't have to have that strict schedule i can eat what i want drink what i want but then other days you get really low where you're lost because I think all I know that I'm good at is swimming. And it's like all that, that's gone now. What actually am I good at? What is it that I want to do next? So I'd say, yeah, it's like an emotional roller coaster. Some days I love it. Some days it's like, it's a mental and low. I think it's really helpful for people who are, who are in a similar position to you, who've had to stop doing something that they love. Like, how, how hard are those hard days? Like, what is the self-talk like? What do you go through? To be honest, it's, I'm so lucky that I've got a good support system. Yeah. Um, because yeah, it's days sometimes where you think, gosh, like lost emotion. I'm quite an emotional person. So some days you think, what's the point in getting out of bed? Like I, I'm just emotional. I, I don't know what I want to do. And I think again, it's so hard because you compare yourself to other people. And so Steve Redgrave went through a, a feeling and talked quite openly about when he um, retired from the sport. So I've got a way that I can like, if he can do it, he's the legend of the sport. And I know quite a lot of other athletes who have retired have gone through that emotional feeling because in a sense, it's, it's all I knew from such a young age. It's, I had my life set. I had my life planned. Like, 
it's it's a weird weird feeling but I think I'm very lucky yeah that I've got support system around me like amazing friends like my partner Matt he's incredible and like family that keeps you going through those days and I think it's relatable to people who have left a job that they've known for so many years and like they enter that next chapter of like what is it that they want to do next and I think in a weird way we're in a, we're in a world now where your world's your oyster you can do so many different things but it's like what do you want to do next like and that's what I question because I I found this quite a sad thing actually I was having a conversation with some of the pundits at work and Michael Owen who obviously conquered the world at 17 and achieved all this amazing stuff he was sitting there talking to the couple of other pundits Rhea Ferdinand and I think maybe Julian Lescott and the three of them just had an agreement that the best day of their life has come and gone they went and Michael very openly just said, like, it'll never be as good. Like, anything I ever do yeah. will never be as good. Like, wow. is, that, um, is that something that you've had to broach oh, in your own mind? Yeah, definitely. And like I said, like, I think one of the questions I was thinking is, like, if I could go back to 2012 and relive it all, I would any day of the week because... 2012 time that whole year was the best year of my life pretty much and it's so funny because when you're at, at as, as an athlete or when you're doing your sport or doing your thing and things are going well in a sense you just you think it's going to be like that for the rest of your life don't you you don't capture that moment you don't sit back and think wow this is incredible because so in a sense like I wish now that I look back and think I captured 2012 more and captured the moment of that having the Olympics, the Paralympics in our ho- in our capital city, and competing in front of a home crowd, like yeah, it's it's crazy. And to think that it's ten years ago now too. That's but then you mental. have to remember that like you're not a you're not a more valuable person because you're good at swimming. Like you know, everyone swims. Yeah. <laughs> right? it's kind of something that human beings can do. You did it fast, amazing, well done. That's brilliant. You've got the medals to prove it. But and I don't want this to sound trite or even disrespectful, but. It's just swimming. Yeah. Like you've got a whole life now. And you, like you've just said, you can go and do absolutely anything. And I think there's no value in spending your time thinking you're less of a person because you don't swim at a competitive level. Yeah, but then it's also, which I totally get, but then also, um, like you said, I'm Ellie Simmons, the swimmer, aren't I? And that whole identity now has gone. Like, that's not who, like what I do now every single day. Yes, I'll always be known as the girl that, did well at 2012 but that's not me now and it's like trying to find that that new identity in a way something that I like to do something that I'm good at because I don't know what I like to do but all the do. things that got you to the top of the swimming game can get you to the top of something else like yeah. they're all transferable skills that mindset that but sometimes I think as athletes you don't think about that you you don't think of those transferable school skills and like I remember like having to re- redoing my CV and um, speaking to like a performance lifestyle advisor a couple of months ago and they were like athletes you don't realize the skills that you got as athletes when but at the end of the day it's because you did it just every single day you you don't think about the future you don't think about the job that it can transpire to can can relate to but yeah it is I mean I often think of the analogy of if you think of the two surviving members of the Beatles you think Ringo Starr defines himself as the former drummer of the Beatles. Paul McCartney says, I'm a musician that was once in a band called the Beatles. Now, Ringo Starr's creative output has been negligible compared to Paul McCartney that's done the next 40 years of his life, just re-recording, doing all kinds of innovative music, still touring at the age of 70-odd or whatever he is. 
And I think that as I listen to you here, Ellie, I think that you're not Ellie the swimmer, you're Ellie the inspiration that can go and influence a new generation. That And that was just a platform for you to do it. I'm interested in what help are you getting to make that transition? Yeah, um, I think it's day to day, isn't it? And I think, like, if you think of it in a big think it's I've only retired six months ago actually in the big scheme I think that's not that long so I think like I said to myself even before Tokyo I'd give myself a year of figuring things out and again it's it's talking to that support system isn't it it's speaking to people it's me to think like things like this chatting to you guys today you learn sometimes every single day something about yourself that you've never remembered before like trying to think on the train just now what actually was it that made me um a good swimmer like I never really had that to question myself thinking about that because you just did it so I think it's it's just learning from yourself every single day and like capturing what is it that you actually enjoy what is it that makes you happy well I was telling you I, I saw you on the train uh, <laughs> about a month or so ago and I saw those guys and and their wives asking you to come and sit with them and they weren't asking you to come and sit with them because you were Elliot the swimmer. They were asking you to come and sit with them because they enjoyed your company. And like when you got off the train, you know, they were talking about how nice you were, how you'd oh. made the day. And But that was nothing to do with your swimming ability. That was just what you brought to that moment in time. And I think it's important that you make the time to realise all the qualities that Jake was describing earlier, your adaptability, your ability, that all the things you learned in sport while you were doing that are all skills that are gonna facilitate you making a real difference beyond it yeah and I think maybe I need to take that more of that on isn't it but I think as well it's that competitive side of me still is that like what actually is it that I'm good yeah. at what is it that, that that those transferable skills you don't get a gold medal and a podium for being nice to people <laughs> no, no. <laughs> and if you did you'd go yes I've yeah. done it I've got a gold medal today yeah, yeah. so I've had, you know what and I, you know, I can't give you any advice because I've not competed on a world level. But what I will tell you, I've observed from some of the people who are in your position. If you approach the second part of your life with the same ferocious, single-minded determination that you approached the first part of your life with, I do think that you'll find the same level of reward. I think it's when you believe that what you're doing is less valuable than you did before. Therefore, you don't bring the same level of single-minded determination therefore you don't get the same rewards yeah no definitely and I think that's one of the things is that it's being prepared and if you do that in a thing that you you want to do it at like good at like you say in football or in any sport or in job or office and you don't do it on the other th side of things it's a bit like you question yourself really isn't it and I think also it's like it shows passion like I and I'm sure you guys know when someone comes into the room and they're happy to be there they're passionate about it it radiates off you doesn't it and then you want to do it to the best of your ability as well and it's like for me I, I very much bounce off people with like that who when they're passionate when they they're happy to be there work hard their work is ethic is incredible you, you want to work to that standard yeah. as well hey come on man it's not the beginning of the end it is the end of the beginning there's a whole new world waiting for you now we've reached the point where we do our quick fire questions oh yeah are you prepared for these yes great yeah. so uh, <laughs> what are your three non-negotiables um passion um being prepared and um not being late <laughs> <laughs> I, love, I love your focus on time you and sir chris hoyer together yeah <laughs> literally those um again passion is a massive thing for me um 
and again I just I said it just is is when you're passionate about it you you get the best of yourself and the best of your other people around you and um, being prepared is a huge huge thing like like you say if I walked on poolside and I'd left my hat and goggles in my swimming at home I'd not brought my costume then that's two that's three things that I I need as a swimmer like I wouldn't be able to train I wouldn't be able to do the sport if I hadn't brought that so it's like I want other people to be as prepared at like me in a, in a weird way and um lateness I think that's one of the things like me and my coach always said if you if you're on time you're late and I think he because I was with him from such a young age it's like rattled into me now when um someone's late it's like it's a bit disrespectful where were you where are you and where are you going so where am I in BT Tower on a high high building <laughs> where am I going um I love to do more for other people. I think I've just done a recent documentary on dwarfism and it's definitely like opened my eyes to, to people in my community and what I can do. So working with other charities that support dwarfism is, is a massive thing that I want to do. Um, and to help other people is a, is a massive, massive thing. And I still love to be involved in swimming coaching or giving back in in that way like I think in a weird way it's like I've closed that door at this present time but in 10 years time five years time I'd love to be involved in some way what message would you give to a teenage Ellie at the height of her fame take it all in soak it all in um enjoy it all I think in a weird way and I think still sometimes now as from being that athlete now into being a retired athlete, you're always so focused on the future. And actually sometimes I wasn't in that present moment and taking it in and just soaking on that whole atmosphere. So I'd say to my young Ellie self, I would say, yeah, soak it in, um, grasp it all, take in all the opportunities and be present. If you could go back to one moment in your life, when would it be and why? The lead up to Rio 2016, I was, in the best shape of my life. I was the fittest I've ever been, the strongest I've ever been. But actually the mental side of me was probably the lowest of lows. And I think I would go back and speak out a bit more, um, use that support system, use the psychologist a bit more and to, to put my hand up and say, yeah, I need that extra help because at the time I don't think I really put my hand up and ask for help I was just so thinking about myself in a weird way and being a bit selfish where actually putting my hand up and asking for help I think was a thing big thing that I probably should have done more instead of the support system of like I know I spoke to my parents a lot in that that year but actually into that wider like outside that support system were you worried about showing weakness probably yeah probably I think that was probably, yeah, the biggest thing. And I think as well, it was the realisation that this was probably the first time actually in my mental side, I was probably the lowest and I'd never actually experienced that. So I think for me, it was like, I was new. I didn't know, do you know when you have that mindset where you, you are feeling low and you've not experienced anything like that, you, you're unsure of what you're feeling. So actually because it's probably all new and I've never felt those feelings before that actually, yeah, you just think, oh, what are these feelings? Like you don't really want to talk out about them because also as well, I think, yeah, maybe it's embarrassment because again, I was going into to a Paralympics and I was in the fittest shape of my life. So actually, why, why should I be mentally in the wrong, wrong side of my mind? 
And finally, um, a last message to people. And you know, let's remind ourselves that you have inspired an entire generation of people to follow in your footsteps. So for parents and for you know, young wannabe athletes or for people who are maybe embarking on a second career like you are now, like, what would you leave people thinking about? What is your kind of final message, your one golden rule to living a high performance life? To be the best version of yourself, to do the very best and whatever you're doing, have no regrets, but also not just no regrets, learn from the things that don't go well and put your hands up and say, yeah, that didn't go well, but what, what can I improve for next time? But I think, yeah, don't compare yourself to other people and do the very best and do what makes you happy. I think happiness, I think growing older now as a 27 year old and living life is when you're happy, you're it radiates, doesn't it? And you're happy in yourself. So being happy is a massive thing. Well, you should be happy. You should be proud of what you've done. But more importantly than any of those things, you should be and must be excited about the future and what comes next because um, the evidence tells you you have all the tools available to be successful because you've done it once. And if you've done it once, you can do it again. So go and enjoy the journey. Thank you ever so much for having me on. Thanks, Ali. Love the conversation. <laughs> Damien. Jake. I have never heard Ellie Simmons talk like that. And I've seen lots of interviews with her. I've known her for a number of years. I get the sense that she's in a hard place actually at the moment. You know, she is fresh from being an elite athlete. And I've seen many people in that position struggle over the years. And I think that when I say she doesn't know what she doesn't know yet, you know, I think that she's just feeling this out, this post-professional sports life. And there's probably going to be some hard times ahead and I really, really hope for her sake that she's able to find the fulfilment, find the purpose and be brave enough to explore until she does. Yeah, I think you've touched on a really astute point there, Jake. I think it struck me at one stage that she's 27, you know, and her whole life has been consumed by swimming. And I don't think she's able yet to fully appreciate those qualities that led her to such success in a swimming pool are actually gold dust out there in the real world away from working in elite sport, the, you know, her ability to, she described herself as being the matron, just the warmth that she projects, the ability to get people on side, the, you know, the commitment that she had to train and to be a nerd, as she said, and, and appreciate her craft. They're things she can take and, and make such a powerful difference, whether it's as a advocate for her own community or whether it's just as a swimming coach or just on a wider basis. I just think, She's got it all out there for her. And do you remember when we spoke with Osu Manura and you asked him about his, his concerns about um, dementia among former NFL players? And he said, look, nothing comes for free. I have to accept that I took some hard tackles and who knows what the future holds. I kind of was look, listening to Ellie yesterday thinking, nothing comes for free. Like, and I see this with the footballers that I work with all the time. You know, I turn up to a Champions League final or an FA Cup final or a big Premier League game with the men who were once the absolute centre of the story. You know, they were cosseted by press officers. They were taken in on a coach. They were the other side of the crush barrier from the fans. They were in the dressing room on the pitch, straight taken away by a driver in a blacked out car, written about in the newspapers. And now we all walk in together across the road wearing lanyards around, otherwise they're not going to be allowed in and the fans are asking for a photo and sometimes they don't even bother asking for a photo anymore. And I will look at them sometimes and think, 
this is the other side of the coin. All those years of being the main man or woman in her case, now you have to accept that it's someone else's opportunity to stand on the top step, to be written about, to be lauded. And I just think it's really hard, actually. Yeah, it is. But then that's where the virtue of humility comes into its own. So do you remember when Chris Hoy told us about, he, he, and very honest, that he said that he'd spent years being the number one person in his own house where everything was centered around keeping him happy and prepared to go out there and perform. And then he became a father and he became relegated to the third most important person. And he was honest enough to say that that was quite a difficult transition to make. But I think humility allows us to do that without ever getting high on our own supply, but without getting too low either uh, when things don't go our way. You know what? I think she'll be okay. I mean, she is the nicest person. People will love the warmth from that interview. But actually, when she talks about the fact that she wrote her enemy list at eight <laughs> years old and, you know, she'd focused on the people breaking the world records and chased them down and attacked them and beat them and caught them up in the pool and got into flow. Like, there's two sides to that lady. And, you know, she will tap into the other side when she needs to, to have a successful second mountain, so to speak, I think. Well, I don't know if you were the same, because we've both got daughters at the same age that Ellie was describing that. And that was the first image that came into my mind of yeah, yeah, imagining yeah. my daughter sat down writing her enemy list and then working out how she could pick them off. And I can't imagine it. But I really admired the fact that she was honest enough to tell us that ultimate competitor was laid within her. It's quite something, and that's what got her to where she got to. Again, nothing comes for free. Thanks, mate. <laughs> Thanks, right. Loved it. We're now joined on the High Performance Podcast by another listener, Giles Hayward-Smith. Giles was a Royal Marine commando. Um, he wanted to leave the military, but it was a big step, and high performance played a role. Giles, nice to have you with us. Hi, great to, great to meet you guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so share with us then, what was your thinking? What was the situation you were in and, and what was the role that High Performance played? So yeah, the, the episode that really hit home with that was the the episode with uh, Oli Gunnar Solskjaer when he was talking about working at Cardiff City, landed this dream dream job, um, but then somehow just didn't didn't fit, you know. Um, and I, I got to that stage with, uh, with the Royal Marines, you know, I've, I've had a great career and I've absolutely loved it. But, um, you know, at one point in my life, I was just like, well, you know, this, this is not really me anymore, you know, it doesn't, doesn't fit me anymore. So how old were you when you joined the Marines, Charles? I was 19 and, you know, I thought I was, uh, <laughs> I thought I was the bee's knees. I was like, yeah, I'm going to go and be a Royal Marine and do all of this great stuff. And, uh, you know, did it, had a great time, been lots of great places, met lots of great people. And then as I get a little bit older, I've realised that actually, you know, my, my values are elsewhere and uh, I need to move on and do something else. If I'm going to be, you know, honest with myself, it's time to go and do something else. And, uh, I know that there are a lot of other people serving in the military that that come to this conclusion after you know a few years service and think that they can't leave. They may not have many qualifications. I don't have any A levels. You know, I'm a massive failure at school. We get into this situation where we think we're trapped. You know, we're we're stuck in this in this career, albeit a great one. But um, you know, if it's not if it doesn't fit 100, percent it's one of those situations where it's not bad enough to have to do something about it, but it's not perfect, you know? So how much did you feel almost institutionalised then in, in, in that military environment? Um, I wouldn't say institutionalised. I thought I wasn't being honest with myself, really, is what it was. I was looking at Royal Marines. I was looking up to Royal Marines before I joined and thought, well, you know, these, guys are, these guys are amazing. I want to be like those guys. I was trying to emulate these, these people that I looked up to. And then eventually I realised these guys are great and, you know, brilliant, but um, it's, it's not me, you know? It can be a scary time that though, can't it? What have you learned 
in terms of what you'd pass on to the audience at home about making big decisions, even when they do scare you? Do you feel that, do you feel you're in a stronger place for what you've been through? hundred percent. I mean, you know, the, a big, a big one for me was listening to the, to the podcast and listening to examples of other people that have made huge steps like this and, you know, taken uh, massive decisions with large consequences um, and, you know, just, just done it anyway. <laughs> one of the best things that Marines has taught me is the anticipation is always worse than the, than the real thing. So, you know, my advice would be if you, you know, if you want something, then absolutely go and do it. So what was it you did want to do instead then? So I'm a, I'm a father now. I've got, I've got two small children and, uh, you know, spending, spending half a year away every year and uh, being away all the time and having to, you know, put all that effort towards a, a job that no longer is exactly, exactly what I want. You know, if I want to perform well in the Marines, then I need to put 100% of, um, of my time and effort towards that. And, uh, and that's no longer what I want to do with my time. You know, I want to put my time towards my children and I want to provide a great life for them. I want to be around, you know, and uh, I want to go to great places, but I want to take them with me. You know, I don't want to go on, on my own anymore. Fantastic. Well, look, thank you so much for joining us. And would you continue to listen to High Performance, even though you've sort of made this decision? Oh, 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like Matthew McConaughey said, there's no yet. So, you know, I'm, I'm not there yet. You know, I need to, I can still progress. I can still get better. And uh, if, if I may, just uh, really, really quickly, there's a, there's a group on LinkedIn called the Gen Dit Network. The Gen Dit, Genuine Dit. Um, and it's a, it's a really, really great step for, for service leaders. You know, there's plenty of us on there, loads and loads of high performers, you know, many of them listen to the podcast. Mm. And, uh, if you're, if you're feeling, you know, that this step's a little bit too big, then come and come and talk to us on there. And, uh, you know, there will be someone doing the job it is that you want to go and do. There's advice there. And, you know, it's a, it's a really good, really good network to be part of. Oh, brilliant. That really echoes what Mark is wearing. The chef told us recently that his dad had told him, hang around with people that you aspire to be and you'll eventually pick up their habits. So that's a great, a great recommendation. Thanks. Brilliant. All right. Take care. Thank you very much for joining Thanks, us. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Cheers, mate. And that's it. Ellie, can I just say on behalf of the whole team, thank you so much, not just for coming on the podcast, but for showing such vulnerability as well. It's going to be so helpful for so many people. All of us wish you the very best of luck with Strictly Come Dancing, which starts very soon. If you're not listening to this in the UK, Strictly Come Dancing is uh, it's the biggest entertainment show in the country. And Ellie is going to be dancing on Strictly every Saturday night in front of millions of people. Um, finally, I just want to say a huge thanks to you for growing and for sharing this podcast among your community. Please continue to spread the learnings you're taking from this series. Please sign up to the High Performance Circle, which is totally free and gives you so much more content and access to some more incredible people. You can do that at thehighperformancepodcast.com. Thanks to Finn, to Hannah, to Will, to Eve, to Gemma, for the whole team behind the power of this podcast. But just remember, there is no secret. It is all there for you. So chase world-class basics. Don't get high on your own supply. Remain humble, curious and empathetic. And we'll see you very soon. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. 
Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns, so you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.